think I saw you in both, and we spoke in both. Uh, three weekends ago, it was the launch for Kitli, and it's funny how Lebanon works. A lot of them are familiar faces and close friends, mm. and then really important speeches delivered. The crowd, I think, really appreciated what was said, and it's, an, it's a healthy way of introducing candidates that are facing an extremely uphill battle. Last weekend, it was the coalition launch, if you will, and I sensed maybe the complications that we all talk about are now dictating everything that's happening. And I think there's a lot of difficulty here in the next six, seven weeks prior to elections. And in my opinion, it shouldn't be there. Mm -hmm. And say as much as you'd like, but am I reading the difficulties right? That these are problems that are really beyond Kitli's control. This is a national problem, and it's almost a, a narrative problem, where right. there's things that the moment you bring them up, you splinter people. Whether Kitlis says things or not, almost doesn't matter. It's going to happen. There's going to be that division within the opposition. Right. So sorry to start a bit sloppy, but that's no, no, it's fine. Yeah. That's that's where my mind is at the moment. I mean, it's it's for us also an opportunity to explain better and mm -hmm. to explain more uh, our approach as a national bloc mm -hmm. to the issue of uniting the opposition, because the unity of the opposition is a must, is a necessity for us to be able to fight this political class with, at its top, yeah. Hezbollah, that is an extremely powerful political party and a militia. So unity is not an easy task, especially in a very fragmented society like mm. the Lebanese society carrying a lot of memories from the civil war mm. and a lot of vertical divisions between the 8th and the 14th of March. Mm -hmm. Our bet from the very beginning as a national bloc was to unite the opposition, knowing very well that sometimes this entails very difficult and maybe sometimes unpopular choices. Mm -hmm. We knew this from the very beginning. Difficult and unpopular. These choices, is that what most people are thinking about right now in mm. terms of that there's a burden that the choices were made and now there's a wall that's being run into. Let me explain a little bit more. Mm. We worked at two levels, okay? The first level was about bringing some organization mm. and bringing some unity between the movements, the reformist movements, yeah. be it uh, movements that were born during the 17th of October uprising, mm -hmm. or movements that were actually emerged during the 2010 uh, years, um, mm -hmm. uh, mostly movements from the civil society. You think and the you think, Medina, the Hall of Watani, etc. Or uh, political parties like the National uh, Bloc mm -hmm. that revived itself only six months. Yeah. before the revolution, right? right? Yeah. And we had this uh, goal or objective mm. to unite all of these movements under one umbrella. And actually, it worked to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. That was the 13th of April call yes. that took place at the National Bloc headquarter last year. Mm -hmm. Where Mintishreen joined hands with Al-Kitli. Absolutely. Yeah. Mintishreen, uh, Marsa Chabi, Madinati, Tahaluf Watani, and actually a lot of movements as well from the different regions mm -hmm. of yes. Lebanon, mm -hmm. right? Uh, on another level and in parallel, we started a dialogue. And I would have to say a very fruitful dialogue with parties that took part mm to the system or to the civil war in mm -hmm. different ways. Mm -hmm. We were convinced, convinced that these parties with, the new, with their leadership were trying to change from the inside. Yeah. And I'm talking here mostly about the Tanzim Shab al-Nasri under the leadership of Osama Saad, right. about the Communist Party to a certain extent, and also about the Kataib of Sam Ismail. Mm -hmm. And we believe that every Lebanese is allowed to, ch to, to actually join yeah. the movement of reform and the movement of change. There is no veto. No one has any actually power 
or legitimacy to prevent any Lebanese, other Lebanese, from joining the movement of reform. And this is our main bet. Mm -hmm. We see an opportunity, actually, in how these three parties are uh, converging toward the same ideas we are putting on the table as reformist parties. I appreciate the emphasis on reform, and I think that is the uphill battle. Right. Because you've allowed enough space for somebody like Sami Jmail, and I like the way you describe it, the Sami Jmail Kata'ib party, this party that is so involved in Lebanon's history and involved in the darker years as well, that it's able to be part of that reform umbrella. And then you have the communist or Hussein Assad on the other end of the spectrum, who can also be willing to turn the page and sign up to reform. And even, I think, the national bloc, because it's so old and embedded in Lebanon's history and it's pre-independence, the fact that this party can also be part of the reform ticket, it, it shows that reform is the emphasis, mm. not the Puritan side to October 17th. Right. But then, in my mind, the question comes up that is there really one narrative to this story? Because I can imagine a coalition where you have opposite sides to economic policy, opposite sides maybe to every policy, but they still want to reform the state. Is that enough to bring people on one ticket? Or do you also need one version, in a way, of, of, of what happened to get there? I think we need this unified narrative and it's a very healthy exercise to try to, to reach actually a unified narrative. Mm. It's a way for us to fight the divisive narrative of traditional parties and sectarian mm. parties. Uh, and let me go back a little bit to the first days of the 17th of October. Sure. We were extremely cautious not to tackle up front some issues we might have considered back then as potentially dangerous for the unity of the street. Of the, the I.e. Hezbollah. I.e. Hezbollah, but also uh, the question of uh, civil secular state. Right, right. right. I mean, yes. there, are, there were a number of issues. Mm. Also, for example, the issue of the IMF mm -hmm. that was put on the table very early on during yes. uh, the revolution, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we decided actually to engage in a dialogue on these different topics. Mm -hmm. And I think there, there was some success in uniting the narrative. Today, it's very hard to portray yourself as an opposition movement or party without having a very clear stance mm. on Hezbollah, mm. on Hezbollah's choices in terms of having a monopoly over the uh, foreign policy of Lebanon or defense strategy of Lebanon. Yeah. This is not compatible anymore with our will to build a state. But also a very clear stance on Hezbollah's role within the system as the very protector of the Lebanese system. Right. right. The second topic, uh, not everybody agrees on the same approach, but we, I would say, 80% or 90% of the main parties and movements today agree on the necessity to apply the constitution, the current constitution. Yes. Uh, the Ta'if constitution, yes. mm -hmm. that would ensure a transition towards a civil state. Um, the third layer is of this narrative is the understanding we have of the economic and social system we want to put in place in Lebanon. Right. And actually the crisis kind of imposes some realism on how to be able to solve the, the, the current uh, crisis in Lebanon. Right. And this is why, actually, you wouldn't hear many voices within the opposition today opposing an intervention from the IMF, because there is a necessity for this to happen. Mm -hmm. There is no alternative, very unfortunately. And also there is a consensus that Lebanon is 
based on a free market uh, economy, right? It's a free market economy. Then there is a debate on the level of social protection you would need, and especially in times of crisis where you have 80% of the Lebanese below the poverty line. Right. So in order to maintain some social cohesion, you would need a lot of social guarantees to protect the people. So I appreciate that this party, which is in a way talking about historic problems, and my understanding is that these are the same, it's familiar terrain across time. These are not new ideas. Mm. These have been discussed for decades. And I tried my best to look back into the 1930s and 40s and, mm -hmm. and better understand why the, why the National Bloc was the first party to propose a civil marriage law. I think it's 1953. Absolutely. Concerned. And also women's rights, uh, the ability to pass the nationality down, yeah. that comes later. Or even something very noble, not taking part in the Civil War. Yep. Uh, I, I forgot, actually, that Raymond Edde uh, didn't come back and didn't participate in the 1992 elections out of principle. So there's that, I think... There's something quite uh, quite important in that this party is able to portray itself as an honest and also progressive reformist party, and its its hands are clean from violence. Yet, the difficulty at selling the message is so obvious. Mm. And I'll give you an example. I think, and you tell me if I'm wrong. I think. Talking about sovereignty or talking about uh, sub-state weapons in a speech and then turning very quickly to Riyadh Saleme and the central bank, I think it, it, it almost makes the story muddy, mm. that it becomes a, it's hard to focus on a huge problem without attaching it to other problems and the messaging becomes unclear or for that matter. The familiar term, which I think is wrong, saying multiple militia, or the militiate, I think makes, it almost seems like this is excusing what one militia does and making it more, uh, making it more accessible to a larger audience. Mm -hmm. And I think the voices become unclear, uncertain even when they, they've become sharper over time. The more recent speeches I've heard are, in a way, a little more amplified and a little more honing in on what Hezbollah has done. But the word doesn't come up. It comes mm. up as an issue of sovereignty, which can be maybe a million different things, and you pick and choose what you want from it. Almost sounds like a supermarket list iteming rather than the main ingredient that is poisoning the state. Am I being too negative when I say this? Am I, am I, in a way, being too hard on people? I mean, it's a legitimate debate. It might have been true mm. during the first few weeks uh, after the 17th of October uprising for mm. the reasons I mentioned to mm. you. Mm. Not because we were afraid or refusing to speak about this very problem, yeah. but we saw an, a, a need for unity and that we actually had a bet that through dialogue we will be able to reach a very clear narrative within unity. Mm, I see. And actually, I mean, we have a very uh, clear uh, discourse towards the problem posed by Hezbollah in Lebanon. Mm. And this was said very clearly in our speeches. Uh, and I think the first way to tackle Hezbollah's problem in Lebanon is through the truth being told to the public, yeah. not from a sectarian perspective, but from a national perspective, mm. because we are betting on the state, on statehood. And if there is a common point to all position taken by the national bloc mm. throughout the recent decades and throughout Lebanon's recent history, is that we always bet on statehood. Absolutely. And you can even see it in the texts of speeches over time. That this is the reason why we refused yeah. to take part of the civil war. This is yes. why Remo Edde decided to stay in exile. Yeah. And 
again, this is what we are saying to the Lebanese people today. Mm -hmm. The crisis proves that there is no alternative to the state and to the role that could be played by a state to run an economy, to run a society, to mm -hmm. protect the people and to defend the borders. I'm going to take liberty and push you as far as I can Go this ahead. evening. I, 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 never, <laughs> I never do that unless I really want to fully understand the issue. Every single party I've Every single member I've had on the podcast from, op from opposition in October 17 can spend maybe hours talking about policy related to most economic problems. And also, to a certain degree, almost all political problems can be discussed with proposals and even the experts we both know in this country. Uh, they're ready. They've done the research. They have all the proposals, all the ideas, and they've spent years and this is not something new. This one issue seems to never be, there, there's no solution. It's more rhetoric. And the reason I'm, I'm going down this road is because I'm not sure if the loudest voices that are criticizing this issue are the ones that have the solutions. They seem to be loud for the sake of voters or mm. maybe uh, electioneering rather than what can you do about this problem here? So my question would be more in, does the National Bloc think that this problem can be solved through elections and through local issues? Or does it require a much bigger, much more, maybe almost an international uh, deal to end this nightmare? Because I don't know what an MP can do to tackle this issue. You cannot wait for an international deal to uh, happen, especially that this deal could be at the very at the expense mm -hmm. of the Lebanese people, right? Yeah. So we need to uh, prepare ourselves to do the fight internally. Um, and I think we need to also draw lessons from what happened uh, with the 14th of March mm -hmm. uh, movement um, and alliance. Um, I think the biggest mistake that was done by the 14th of March movement was to turn a national battle into uh, a battle between sectarian parties. Um, and actually, in a way, we, uh, the, the day we turned it into an alliance between sectarian parties, we lost the battle. We need the addition and we need Lebanese from across the country to adhere to the idea that the state needs to have a monopoly over legal violence in the country for the state to be mm. able to live mm. and to be able to operate. And this, is, this message didn't come through because it was carried mostly by sectarian leaders that in, in reality lost every credibility in the eyes of the Lebanese public. I want to understand what you mean by uh, the March 14 movement used or turned to sectarianism uh, in solving or trying to solve this issue. I'll, I'll, I'll delicately try to rope, rope around a question for you. Yeah. No, no, go, go ahead. ahead, please. No, no, please. I mean, and, and you know, probably better than me, I don't know about that. But. No, no, you, you know probably better than me. The reason why some personalities, rather than others, were targeted. Yes. The personalities that were able to bridge the gap with other communities, that were able to enlarge the audience of the 14th of March movement, yeah. were specifically targeted, yes. be it George Howey. Yeah be it Muhammad Shatah, be it Samir Asir, yeah. Rafiq Hariri, these were people that were able to transform the 14th of March movement into a national movement and not, to, not only an alliance between sectarian parties. What we are looking forward to is to have this support mm -hmm. from across Lebanese communities to a national project that is betting on statehood. Then my question, you're eloquently describing... Uh, and sorry for maybe mentioning some 
personal, oh. but you, you, you see the, the point, right? Oh, absolutely. And I actually, I, I subscribe fully to the way you're describing what happened in mm. that sense, that characters in this country's history that tried to put the state ahead of anything, I think are the first to perish. And that's been an, it's an old tragedy. Um, and all the more reason why a problem like Hezbollah is still an obstacle or a major stumbling block towards reforming the state. But the, just the, the focus on sectarianism, which I hear, not, it's obviously not from Al-Kitli, it's from most October 17 in opposition parties. Right. That there's this uh, tendency to look at the sectarian issues as the, it's almost like the boogeyman, that that's mm. the problem that persists. I, I don't know if March 14's uh, end comes from sectarianism. And the reason I'm going down that road is because we're in March 2022, after a year and a half of hell. It starts off in, uh, in, a, in a much more euphoric way, October 17. By 2021... By, by 2020, by the port blast, really, it's, it's clear that we're in a very dark period. You're right. And we're still in that period. The most popular parties in this country remain the old guard. Uh, the most sectarian party, perhaps, the Lebanese forces. And I'll use sectarianism here carefully. Mm. The, most, the most narrow communitarian party that I can think of is gaining votes and is doing better this round. Uh, the most unpopular sectarian party, Tayyar Watan al-Hur, may lose 15-20% of its base, mm. but that's after a year and a half of being scolded and insulted and, I mean, real antagonism towards that party and its leadership, they're losing a small margin. The, vi the void, I think, that we all talk about in different ways, this reluctancy, reluctancy for Sunni participation, which is becoming increasingly clear. Mm. The future party, even when it exits, it still is the largest Sunni <laughs> group in this country, mm -hmm. even when it's not participating. And that's after Hadidi's resignation, that's after his exile. So I, I don't know if sectarianism is really the issue. I think, uh, I think it's more ingrained in us than we appreciate, even when the idea is to bring as many people together as possible and focus on the state. I think sectarianism is not the thing that prevents that from happening, which is why I, I agree with you that the, the taller figures in March 14 that could look beyond communal insecurities, mm -hmm. they shined when they were trying. But I don't think the communal insecurities contributed to their demise. Now, does that make sense? The way I'm saying it, and, and does that factor into why there's a reluctancy to admit that there is a sectarianism component that is real and it cannot simply be thrown away? I mean, let's uh, go back a little bit mm. to what was the main goal uh, and what was the main cause behind the 14th of March. Mm. It's about the recovery of the Lebanese state and the recovery of sovereignty, yes. right? Yeah. The problem being is that the way sectarian parties behave do not allow them, in a way, to have enough credibility to convince Lebanese beyond their own communities that mm. the real uh, people capable of defending the Lebanese state. This mm. is the main issue. What we're trying to say to the Lebanese people is that there is today an opposition that carries enough credibility that is being able to address the Lebanese people as a whole, mm. yeah. and that is actually capable of defending the state. I, and actually, I mean, you say that 
they still have some popular base, right? The sectarian parties. But I want to actually point out one number. Yeah, please. Yes. This is uh, actually a number that is being highlighted by most uh, opinion polls, mm. right? 60 to 70% of the Lebanese want change. They want a change in, mm. this, in the system. Mm -hmm. They want some change, right? Mm -hmm. Our role is to be able to talk to the 60 or 70% of the Lebanese. Right. Right? Yeah. So there is an opportunity. What we are trying to do is clarity in the narrative and to try to unify forces at the same time. And mm. I think we are getting there. Let me Progressively. play with... Well, no, I, I mean, I... I, uh, I appreciate that I'm a guy who can just throw questions at you <laughs> and I don't have to deal with the intricacies of the daily politics. Yeah. And I can also see how someone like you has to deal with these kinds of questions. And I obviously don't have the insight that you have, but I'm, I'm trying to look at it with a step back mm. and see, trying to see the bigger picture. 60 to 70% that want change. I'm going to just assume that that includes implementing things in Taif. That seems to be the foundation that's missing. And there's three principles in Taif. One of them is the Syrian withdrawal, and that took 15 years. Right. And they may well be on their way back in a different way. Uh, militia disarmament. Legitimate or illegitimate reasons after... May 2000, the Israeli withdrawal from the south, Hezbollah lost its raison d'etre, its whole rationale for holding on to its weapons. The third thing, which I think is reform in its essence, is a Senate, mm. where you let sectarian insecurities express themselves. 100%. And right. to me, this is not a, it's not a very complicated thing. I mean, many... Uh, There's many ways to place insecurities in the rightful hall of power. But that seems to be a far more uh, simpler journey than trying to undo the state or trying to... It's, it's almost like there's a, there's a narrative where the state itself is the problem. Mm. The system is the problem. We have to start over. And I don't know if that's true. Absolutely, and I agree 100%. Mm. Um, I mean, the debate on the need to change the constitu constitution is yeah. legitimate in every democratic society. Right. But today, the real issue is not uh, as much about the system itself and the constitution itself, mm. because it has never been applied properly. Right. But it's more about the practices of the sectarian parties. Um, mm -hmm. The problem is not about sectarianism itself. It is the reality of the Lebanese society. And we need to admit this right. and to try to move forward uh, and to try to create a state under these conditions while accepting the reality of the Lebanese society. Mm -hmm. And I think the Taif agreement, to a large extent, Uh, kind of offers us a roadmap Absolutely. for this. Yeah. And we need some certainty. We need something that we all, or most of us, agree on, mm -hmm. right? And this is the case of the Taif Agreement. I mean, today, yeah. most Lebanese tend to agree on the Taif Agreement. Yes. They all refer to the Taif Agreement. So let's try to move forward from this yeah. uh, point. Uh, yeah. So assuming if that is a winning strategy... And let's be optimistic. There is a minority coalition in parliament. I think it's comfortable to say that there's no anticipation of majority. Let's say there's a healthy minority that can actually work as a productive opposition. What is the space in parliament that opposition parties can really work in? We talked a bit about the failure of March 14 in terms of sovereign ambitions and the inability to do it, uh, whether it's through the assassinations you described or even the, the ugly side of Lebanese politics that dominated the discourse later. There were reformers that tried in those years, and I think it's safe to say 
It's not the first time Lebanese have tried to reform. What makes this round different? And why would we expect anything else to change? Meaning, once key issues are addressed, I would assume that the threat of violence returns. Tayune last year, mm-hmm. October 14, Tarebitar has not done anything since. Mm. The investigation is paralyzed. I don't know if an MP or a, an opposition in parliament can, can go down that road. Yeah. I, I don't think he's being paralyzed because MPs are not doing more. He's paralyzed, my understanding, from the reasons that the state is paralyzed, less the MPs. So anything you can say to what you anticipate as an, as an opposition in parliament? I mean, I think the main difference would be is our approach and the, the way we will tackle the key issues mm. in uh, Lebanon, right? If you compare uh, what we are trying to uh, propose as a political strategy to the one that was put in place and used by sectarian parties, Mm -hmm. you see that the relationship between them is transactional. It's about exchanging services and positions. Mm. And this is why you see that in many cases they would accept things that are extre- that are unacceptable yeah uh, they would accept things that are abnormal things like hezbollah continuing to behave as a powerful powerful militia mm. that has hegemony over the sta- the institutions mm-hmm. um, and so the opposition first task is to say and speak the truth from a national perspective, based on a national project, mm. capable of addressing all Lebanese. And I think this one uh, uh, condition is uh, required for us to try to build on it. Um, is it more than addressing? In other words, is it really just trying to make the case more than being able to do that much because I appreciate that the narrative is within your reach and the hard work that's been done I've seen it I've experienced it the the multiple hours the long days trying to find consensus Mm -hmm. on how to deliver this message is it really just that's that's where the work is and changing things later in parliament or real traditional power, that may not happen. That could be later, at a later stage. I mean, it's one thing is to say the truth and addressing mm. the public opinion mm. about some key issues you referred to. Mm. But also, I mean, the work of parliamentarian commissions, right? Yeah. A lot of the, this work is happening behind closed doors. Right. For us to have access to what's going on there mm. is key mm. to be able to point out the responsibilities of the parties that are trying, for example, today to block the reforms. Right. I mean, we saw how instrumental was the role of the Finance Commission right. in blocking the reforms and how all parties taking, place, taking mm-hmm. part to the discussions behind closed doors were blaming each other for blocking the reforms. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I appreciate that, but I'm no defender of this crowd, this Mm -hmm. regime. Uh, I don't have anything good to say about the current crop other than there's a few people that I can identify as reformists, and some of them are in key positions. I have no... There's no appeal to me when it comes to the Syrian Socialist Nationalist Party. I don't identify with them. I doubt they identify with me or they probably don't even know who I am. But that party, I don't, it doesn't match any of my understanding of what it means to be in this country. And probably the most competent minister in the current cabinet is affiliated with that party. I don't know if he's an actual member, but he was nominated by them. 
that Saad Deshemi mm-hmm. is the deputy prime minister, and I think he's been tasked to get this IMF deal pushed through. I think of him as a competent reformer and a numbers guy, and somebody who had a career at the IMF, who's not here to do politics. It's more to do hard economic thought and procedure and financial reform. He's not able to get far. So why would somebody taking his place be any different? Because Saad Shemi is an excellent technocrat. Hmm. But the, the decision, the political decision, is not in his hands. Implementing reforms hmm. is a decision taken by political actors. Hmm. Because it actually implies political choices that have political costs. Mm. And they're trying to escape in any way possible before the elections, the reforms. And they keep, the only thing they know to, they know uh, how to do it is to uh, blame each other, actually, for mm. blocking the reforms. And having someone from the inside telling the people the truth about what's going on would actually deprive them from a very powerful tool they use to, um, mm. to, to escape responsibility. So the opposition would carry the burden. And I'm, I'm, it's almost hypothetical now, but would it be a principle of you resign if you're unable to deliver? Is that the policy forward? Because I, I genuinely don't know why the political decision would change. Mm-hmm with a minority opposition or a majority. I still see that the bigger problems don't go away from, from, from local elections. Mm. The role of the opposition within the parliament, Yeah, and I'm going to repeat myself here. I'm sorry if I'm forcing you to... No, no, <laughs> what would actually would deprive the political class from a very powerful tool is their ability to keep telling lies to their own people. Take, for example, the free patriotic movement. Mm. They keep portraying themselves as a reformist movement, right? Willing to implement reforms. That's true. And <laughs> even though we know for a fact that they're not willing to do it. Yeah. But we don't really know what exactly went on in, within the uh, commission, the finance commission, I see. where Brahim Kenan, for example, played yeah. the key role. Right. And he keeps saying that he pushed for the reforms. Mm-hmm. Having someone inside from the opposition mm. telling the people and pointing out responsibilities mm. would be a game changer. I, I know that he's not a politician. I know that he's just a, maybe he put himself in the light and then took himself out. But somebody like Henri Shaul, for example, mm. who resigned, right. declaring the reasons why. Or even a former Tayyar Watanil Hur guy, Alain Bifani, mm-hmm. resigns and does something similar, explains why. Is it that kind of technique where you're showing the population where the burden lies? And that's the more people that do it, the better? Is that the rule? The more people uh, they do, the better, of course. Mm. But uh, an MP is not, I mean, it's a different position than a technocrat like Alain Bifani. Right. Alain Bifani, when he couldn't uh, be able to, to deliver, he yeah. simply uh, resigned, right? Right. From an institution. Mm. The MP is not only here to deliver uh, reforms, he's mm-hmm. also here to supervise, to control, mm-hmm. check and balances, etc., etc., to tell the people the truth uh, and to keep up the pressure on uh, the political class. Mm-hmm. So it's really pressure more than anything. It's putting pressure on the regime to do better. I mean, this is one of the uh, possibilities, yeah. Because that language is the language of reform, where you don't throw away everything and pretend like you can start over. That's, that's accountability. So I can see that as a healthy tool in parliament. If you can, from your own side, your own journey, 
and I know that we, we spoke only briefly several times, and right. we don't really know each other well, but we know no. of each other well. You're the political director. I think you were in the executive committee, or you still are in the executive committee. Um, you're playing a very difficult role in, I think, one of the most difficult chapters of Lebanese history, trying to sell the message of accountability and reform to a very small but well-known brand like the National Bloc. If you could try to persuade someone to vote for this cause rather than what feels right, which is the comfort zone. The comfort zone can be the regime. The comfort zone can be someone that is blaming the opposition. And I'll, I'll give you a duality here. Let's take somebody like a Sharri resident or somebody in Metin or wherever, Kisarwen, who's leaning on the Lebanese forces. They speak the language of reform. They, I think, have tried in different ways to put reformist ministers in previous years. And I think that's, that's more fact than, uh, than, being, than caressing them, that they had their version of reform in the past. They're a larger party. They have more visibility. Let's talk about the Kataib. They're in the opposition. They're a very old, very well-known brand. They scream and shout all the time, reform, reform, reform. And they use the language of sovereignty and all that. Uh, then you have the other side, which I think is playing a counterproductive role. The opposition to the opposition. Mm -hmm. uh, a group can emerge in 2016, 17, 18, like Mumfit, where they become almost the accountability to people that are pushing on accountability, and it seems so counterproductive. And yet their cause is catching on too. So why is the National Bloc best placed to sell that message? I mean, let's assume that the Lebanese forces will be representing most of the Christians in Lebanon, okay? Oh, you think it'll go th that far? No, no, let's no. assume. Assuming, yeah. Okay. Assu let's assume this. Yes. Let's go with this. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 let's assume that the Lebanese forces will represent most Christians in Lebanon, yeah. right? I think that's how they see it, but let's, uh, let's go with their assumption. Let's go with their assumption, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, let's try to imagine what are the scenarios that are possible mm -hmm. in the future. Mm if they manage to fulfill this goal they have. Mm -hmm. Best case scenario is a compromise with Hezbollah. Yeah. The other powerful party that actually uh, represent most of the Shia community. Best case the meaning worst, for their survivability. Not, yes, yeah, to be right. able to implement some of their right. uh, objectives, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. A new Marm Khail mm -hmm. kind of uh, scenario. Mm -hmm. The worst case scenario would be dragging the country back into a civil war if they do not manage to reach an agreement with Hezbollah, if Hezbollah keeps arming itself from Iran and financing itself mm -hmm. from Iran, mm -hmm. and that the Lebanese forces would turn again to Saudi Arabia to look for financing the way they did uh, during the elections in 2018, right? So the best and worst case scenario are both bad for reform in that sense. Absolutely. There's no middle ground for them. I'm, I'm being hypothetical here, sure. but there, there's nothing that they could do that would resemble what a group like National Bloc is doing, being the honest broker. I mean, the National Bloc today is... Uh, a national party. Mm. The National Bloc has today offices in Jemaize, uh, Beirut, mm. has an office in Ain Limraisi Hamra, has an yeah. office in Nabatiye. And by when I say pres uh, an office, I mean physical presence. Yes. I mean yeah. people there operating from this, these offices. Mm. And also, uh, in parallel to this national projection, we have a very clear discourse. Mm. We have some people in Lebanon saying that they are in favor of, or they are defending the sovereignty of Lebanon. But they think that a secular state is a threat 
to the Lebanese yeah. model, right? Mm-hmm. And on the other side, you have some others saying, well, sovereignty is not that important. Right. Let's focus more on the secularity of the state. Right. That's a the nice na- way of defining the, both. The yeah. national bloc yeah. says very clearly, without any compromise, that we need both. We need sovereignty mm. and the secularity of the state. And mm. in this From this perspective, Mm. the the National Bloc has a very unique political offer Mm. that I think could be very convincing to many Lebanese. And actually, we are seeing it now when we are reaching out to the Lebanese people. We uh, think that these two conditions are required to be able to revive the state and to actually... uh, be able to build a state, a new state Mm. in uh, Lebanon. We need sovereignty and we need the uh, application of the constitution and able to do this transition towards a civil state. Let me be the cynic and suggest that a social pact that would shift our model from sectarian to more civil and secular is well beyond our lifetime. I could be wrong. Let's go down this road. And the um, sovereignty battle that all of us are fighting for in our own way, the bigger obstacle is not in Lebanon, that that requires an external country to reconsider its relationship to Lebanon and Hezbollah. And that may not happen anytime soon. I'm still trying to find the winning strategy for a reformist party to persuade someone who's more comfortable with familiar terrain and why it doesn't seem to be the loudest voice in the room. And, and sorry, I'll, I'll go one step further. I'm not saying this trying to be uh, supportive of any regime party. It's more that I'm a bit surprised that it's not a winning message, that it seems to be still an uphill battle. You know, I think for maybe the first time in the history of this country, where, is, where the need for a state and a strong state is that palpable. Mm. Militias or sectarian parties are cle- clearly unable to address the current crisis. Right. And I think that the Lebanese can sense on a daily basis this urgent need for a state that has very <laughs> clear conditions. I agree with you. So, yes. so I, I appreciate that the crisis is what's driving more people to reconsider their allegiances. I, I hope that that is still enough of a reason that October 17 has some footprint in Parliament. But maybe it's born out of a bit of seeing things as bleak, but it's hard still for me to imagine the tidal wave that a lot of us talked about Mm. when the protests began. It seems to be a very, very diminished aspiration. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing at this stage in Lebanese history, Mm -hmm. but it's hard for me to see radical change. And I, I do appreciate the role of accountability and reform and pressure, because you need that on the local level. And only Lebanese can do that. I'll take advantage of you being here. Yep. Um, walk me a bit through the party's glory years. Um, it's a party that had visibility in cabinet in the 1950s. Um, I think a lot of the nostalgia for the old years, this party played an integral role it somehow got out of the civil war. Mm-hmm. He's going to be in the podcast today. <laughs> You're a star already. He's a star. He doesn't know how to behave. He's really eager to learn about the kidney. How old is he? 13. Ah, he's still do that jump, yeah. I think in a few years it, he'll start missing. There's a lot of nostalgia, I think, mm. for those years. And Kitli is part of that story. Uh, can you walk me just as much as you'd like through time? And... Why, perhaps, this is the moment once more? And is it born out of reimagining Lebanon? Because 
1930s and 1940s is a very delicate phase where the independent Lebanon we live in is born. Mm-hmm. And Kitli is there. And it seems like they're back, where Lebanon is being reborn. So as much as you can share about what the party means in history, and is that maybe a too romantic way of describing this party? Because I, I see it as that. I see it as being reborn with the country. I mean, let me just uh, go back to uh, February 2019 first mm-hmm. and to tell you exactly what happened. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the Lebanese uh, collective uh, memory, the national bloc is uh, always seen as a party of honest people, mm. right? Of, of a party of people who always were extremely attached to statehood. Mm-hmm. Um, and the very idea of the revival of the national bloc was to try to say, to put this political capital mm. to the service of the cause of change in Lebanon. Yeah. And this is why the decision was taken to revive the national bloc. Mm. One thing, however, changed. We actually became, uh, in February 2019, a democratic party in the mm. sense that this idea of Zaim was uh, actually uh, changed into a more collective uh, type of management. Mm. So we have an executive committee that is elected by a general assembly, and the general assembly itself is elected by the members of the party. Mm. Uh, so this was the main reform that actually took place in February 2019. Is that also hinting at less <clears throat> family involvement, meaning the family is there, but they're not central anymore? So Carlos Edde resigned from his position as Amid mm, mm. of the National Bloc mm-hmm. and is today member of the Wise Man Council of the <laughs> National Bloc. He is there to guarantee that we respect the bylaws of the party. Okay. Right? Yeah. But uh, he is extremely supportive, actually, and he was at the initiative of these internal reforms mm. that took place mm. within the National Bloc. Okay. Going back to history, yes. the National Bloc was seen as a liberal, social liberal party, mm-hmm. very keen on preserving actually the, uh, the, 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 the institutions and very keen on preserving the liberal democracy that was Lebanon back in the days. Mm -hmm. Uh, And hence, actually, the reforms that were proposed by the National Bloc, be it the civil marriage, be granting a woman the the right to vote way before, actually, some European countries. Why were these, actually, reforms proposed by the National Bloc? Because the National Bloc was very much aware that the very uh, survival of the national of the Lebanese state is actually related to how secular it would become over time. Mm. Uh, there was a need. I mean, even the French, when they uh, helped us creating the Lebanese state, they also put forward the need for us to move more towards a secular state. And it's easy to forget. One of the mandate presidents, Carlos Itte, he's there at the beginning. So it's almost like the... Emil the oh, sorry, sorry. Carl, yeah. Yeah. Emil yeah. Itte is, is there at the, at the start. Yeah. So he's also part of that mandate story as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, one other thing is the idea of transparency. Mm-hmm. And uh, the National Bloc actually uh, voted, pr- proposed and voted the law that would actually uh, require politicians Mm -hmm. uh, and state officials to declare their revenues once they enter the office and once they end their their mandate. So that was proposed in the 50s by the national bloc. So this reformist spirit was always there. Was it also the, the, at the time the state functioned, the banking secrecy laws are built, or they're 
They're voted in by national blocs. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So that, those are the shining gears of our of banking the sector. Of go- the golden era of uh, Lebanon. Yeah. But, you know, when it comes to uh, bank secrecy, uh, it is true that we were uh, behind this uh, law mm. uh, in 56. Yeah. But today, uh, the world has changed. Right. And bank secrecy is not... Uh, has become, to a large extent, a way to uh, hide, hide yeah. tax evasions, uh, yeah. money laundering, etc., etc. And we see that even Switzerland yeah. is adapting to the new standards. Right. So we today ask for uh, uh, actually a real and serious amendment of the bank secrecy law in Lebanon yeah. for us to be able to actually hunt down those who stole us. Right. Which ties in naturally to reform. Um, But is it fair to say that the opportunity to re-emerge comes with Lebanon's opportunity to re-emerge? That it's not an accident in a very delicate period of history prior to October 17 that Kittler sees itself as able to be part of the story once more. Is that a... Was it a determined policy to bring it back then? Or is it just really timing that it happened as the country was about to... I don't think it's an accident. Mm -hmm. I mean, it came at a moment where you could see within the Lebanese society some political uh, revival, Mm -hmm. some new movements emerging. Uh, You also could see that some political parties, traditional ones are trying to shift away from their comfort zone, right? So it was no coincidence that the National Bloc was relaunched at this particular moment of our history. Uh, We all could sense that something is happening. Uh, And the, the, the idea is also to have an organized party, an organized collective action that would allow us actually to prepare ourselves to fight this very, very tough battle against the system. Um, Then October 17 happened, then the explosion happened, and it was a lot of events actually to to deal with as uh, a political party. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it accelerated the whole uh, the whole process. Our initial plan was a ten years plan to get. I was going to say get the party back to where it was. Right. Uh, and then, yeah, everything uh, accelerated. And, yeah. And I mean, it is a very tough period we're going through today in Lebanon. Mm. But there is maybe an opportunity in the crisis. There is maybe an opportunity in the crisis because the Lebanese people is now realizing are now realizing actually that there is a present need for a state and there is no alternative to uh, the state. Even the supporters of Hezbollah mm, mm. that supported Hezbollah because Hezbollah defended the southern borders against yeah. Israel, they now realize that it is no excuse for Hezbollah to prevent the building of a Lebanese state because they they are facing serious daily threats. I I appreciate the attempt being made to bring in as many people as possible into one umbrella. And it would be foolish to ignore Hezbollah's base and simply assume that that can be dealt with later. You have to bring all Lebanese to a familiar cause and try to find an end to the tragedy. And everyone is being impacted in this country by these problems. I I had an episode recently where the guest described Hezbollah as a Shia problem, and I don't believe that. Mm. I don't like to think of Lebanon that way either. (coughs) We, We are all crippled, and that community is equally held hostage by the same problem. So the the blame is shared, the responsibility is shared. That said, I've met, I've been been fortunate. I've met many Kitli members. I'm friends with two that are currently running, Kamil Morani in Tripoli and Michel Halou in in Ba'abda. I've run into members at most events and I think a lot of them are friends now. And 
I think it's exactly the way you described it. This is a very honest, very determined, patriotic community that is doing its best. And the location of the headquarters in Jemezi, I'll never forget, as I was walking in and out of the protests, it's there. Mm. And uh, you'd see people going in and out. The space was being used. A lot of people were talking politics all the time. And it's so essential to the October 17 memory. And um, I wish you the best in the elections. I, I appreciate the way you're describing uh, many things that have to do with common problems in this country. It's not easy to go through this uh, day in and day out. So I, I really appreciate your time, Neji. Thank you very much for the invitation. And we count on your support, Ronnie. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for doing it in English. Yes. I didn't you. take out the dictionary. <laughs> thank you, Neji. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh,